My next guest is American writer, historian, actor and essayist whose acid wit has made him a hugely popular and indeed unpopular commentator. I like Gore when he's on this show. He says what is on his mind. Mr. Vidal has become a cultural icon. Prolific American novelist, playwright, screenwriter, historian, essayist. Conversationalist, actor, humorist and sometime political candidate. Would you welcome please Mr. Gore Vidal. From We Own This Town, this is Vidalatry. A look at the wit and wisdom in the spoken words of Gore Vidal. I'm Ryan Briegel. Throughout his career as a writer and political commentator, Gore Vidal liked to present himself as a man who could be comfortable in the midst of any sort of company rich or poor, famous or entirely unknown. Yet somehow he very often found himself surrounded by celebrity. So whether it was something he sought out or not, in his youth, Gore became acquainted with two well-known American authors, Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote. Tennessee and Truman certainly had qualities they shared. Both authors wrote about life in the American South, Both put their characters in dramatic, larger-than-life situations. Both were very openly gay, and both writers became very famous. But Gore's relationship with each author could not have been more different. It was February 1948, and Gore Vidal was 22 years old when he met Tennessee Williams at a party thrown by American composer Samuel Barber. The two men quickly realized they shared the same perverse sense of humor, and before long they started spending lots of time together, mostly to scout out sexual partners. In fact, many felt that Tennessee would have enjoyed having a physical relationship with Gore, but by all accounts, that never occurred. Soon after they met, Tennessee bought an old Jeep, and the two men would spend hours driving up Italy's Amalfi Coast, visiting the town of Ravello, where Gore would one day purchase a five-story villa and live part-time. When they met, Gore's third novel, the divisive The City and the Pillar, had just been published, the first to give him any real fame. But at 37 years old, Tennessee was already very established as a playwright, with The Glass Menagerie and A Streetcar Named Desire both wildly successful on Broadway. Gore was disappointed that his novel had sold well at first, but then dropped in popularity. He admired Tennessee's talent, yet envied his success and financial stability. Tennessee was charmed by Gore, but jealous of his youth and good looks. Thus began a back-and-forth feeling of respect and envy between the two authors, as Gore humorously recounted one time Tennessee visited him at Ravello when he spoke with the BBC's Omnibus in 1995. Everything I've written since from Burr on has been written right here at this table in longhand, and though I have visitors, Tennessee came to see me on the wrong day, naturally, at the wrong hour, pure Tennessee. And he looked around and he said, I think Goa has made more money than I suspected. (laughs) As he looked about practically picking up things and seeing how much they'd cost. I've never seen such an invidious commercialite approach from my great artistic friend. In 1958, the film producer Sam Spiegel asked Gore to come down to Miami to meet him and Tennessee to discuss Gore writing the screenplay for one of Tennessee's more bizarre storylines, 
a one-act play titled Suddenly Last Summer. Perhaps reflecting on the event of his own sister's lobotomy in 1943, Tennessee's plot begins with experiments on the brain and ends in a revelation of homosexual desire punished by literal cannibalism. The story is this. A wealthy widow whose son died mysteriously the summer before gets a doctor to agree to perform a lobotomy on her niece by promising to donate to the doctor's psychiatric research project. The widow is attempting to keep the niece from speaking the truth about what happened to the son last summer, although it is eventually revealed. The son had been in Europe the previous summer, and he invited the niece to travel with him in order to attract young men that he would later pay for sex. His plan went awry, however, when a group of men turned against him, chased him, and finally tore him apart, eating his flesh as the niece looked on, screaming. The play had debuted that year off-Broadway, and producer Spiegel knew the subject matter was so out there that it just might gain enough of an audience to be a hit. Spiegel secured three actors that would attract viewers for different reasons. For talent, Catherine Hepburn would play the wealthy widow. For looks, Elizabeth Taylor would play the niece. And for the curiosity factor, playing the doctor was Montgomery Clift. This would be one of the first films Clift made following his much-publicized car accident in 1956. Clift had just driven away from Elizabeth Taylor's house after a dinner party when he fell asleep and smashed his car into a telephone pole. He suffered a broken jaw and nose and several facial lacerations requiring plastic surgery. Spiegel knew audiences would be curious to see how different Clift looked after the accident. Gore Vidal agreed to write the film script as long as Tennessee got nowhere near it. Gore certainly admired Tennessee's writing when they first met, but by this point, Gore viewed his friend as, quote, manic. And Gore wanted to be viewed for his own efforts as a writer. But even without Tennessee's meddling, Gore knew he had quite a challenge on his hands. In 1933, an organization known as the National Legion of Decency was set up to identify and fight objectionable content in films from the point of view of the Catholic Church. A negative rating from the Legion of Decency meant that Catholics were forbidden to see the film, which would probably lead to a film's failure at the box office. In the 1995 documentary The Celluloid Closet, Gore explained the difficulty he had dancing around such touchy themes while cluing in the viewer to exactly what was going on. It was perfectly clear to anybody on the right wavelength what you were doing. You just couldn't use the word. And I met this head-on in a movie called Suddenly Last Summer from uh, a Tennessee Williams play. The Legion of Decency, headed by this sort of shark-like Jesuit priest. And I must have had five meetings with him. Well, you can't say this, you can't say that. By the time we started to cut it, it was making no sense at all. It was like working under the Kremlin, you know, like writing for Pravda. You did learn how to write between the lines, a photograph between the lines. You'd do it with a look or something. Or there'd be a take on Hepburn's face as uh, Elizabeth Taylor would be telling her, getting closer and closer to the truth, which the Legion of Decency wouldn't dare let us say. Did Sebastian like boys or not? Well, the fact that he's eaten up at the end by... Uh, admittedly, Tennessee occasionally went over the top with his dramatic effects. 
Well, suddenly last summer opens and the New York Times is going to destroy this degenerate film, the work of degenerates. So you get a review from Bosley Crowther says that if you like incest, rape, sodomy, cannibalism, degeneracy, this is the movie for you, this sickening picture. Everybody in the country went to see it. That review made the movie. The producer, Spiegel, clearly wanting gore for the work and Tennessee for the name, talked the playwright into taking co-writing credit for Gore's screenplay. He filled Tennessee's head with ideas of Academy Awards, knowing the playwright was wild about winning prizes. And although the film was a big hit for 1959, there would be no Oscar nomination for the script. However, Hepburn and Taylor both received Academy Award nominations for their performances, competing against each other for Best Actress. As for The Legion of Decency, they concluded that, quote, since the film illustrates the horrors of such a lifestyle, it can be considered moral in theme, even though it deals with sexual perversion. Not surprised that Tennessee took the co-writing credit, Gore began to see a pattern emerging of Tennessee acting however he wished and saying whatever he wished. He clearly didn't feel encumbered by the rules of acceptable society. Tennessee would always be Tennessee. Take the time that Gore introduced him to Senator John F. Kennedy, which Gore discussed in a PBS interview in 1998. Well, uh, we were, I got a call from Jackie. I was writing the movie of Suddenly Last Summer in Miami, and Jackie rang and said, can you come up for lunch at Palm Beach? That Jack is, uh, we're both dying to meet Tennessee Williams, so we came up, and this was about 1957, and Jack's already running for president, but Tennessee is very, very vague about who's who. He gives it, now, are you a senator or a governor? I, I'm, I can't get this very clear. And I said, I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm a senator. Mm. And uh, he said, uh, then they kept on chatting away, and then Jack pulled out some guns, and he was shooting at a target. Jack was shooting away, not terribly effectively, and he gave the gun to Tennessee. Who took it like that? He called ten not called Tennessee for nothing. He just took it like that and went three bullseyes. Then, as Jack was going in the house, Tennessee said, um, "That that's a very attractive boy." I said, "Tennessee, you cannot cruise the next president of the United <laughs> States." Oh, he said, "He's not going to be president. He's much too attractive for the American people." Later, I told Jack that Tennessee had found him attractive sexually, and Jack said, "That's very exciting." Tennessee often expressed wariness about his friends who seemed to also want to be playwrights. Maybe it was his own insecurities, or perhaps he worried that his friends had ulterior motives for wanting to get close to him, use him in some way. After seeing a performance of one of Gore's few plays, The Best Man, Tennessee reportedly said, well, this looks like Gore's year. But as Gore relayed in 2000 on Theater Talk, in discussing his friend's last days, there was never any real danger in Gore becoming a full-blown playwright. Tennessee Williams was a close friend for, until he died, for many, many years. And I saw his last days, now mind you, between Nemutol and vodka, he was blowing his brains out, but he still was very, very talented. And it was nothing but agony. Well, I've sent the play to Gadge, but he has not responded. Marlon indicates that he might return to Broadway, and it was nothing but trying to get plays yeah. on. And here is our, the world's greatest living playwright. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> that's not for me. I'm not going to be sending out plays. 
The gadge that Tennessee was referring to in Gore's spot-on impression was a nickname for film director Ilya Kazan, who had directed the film version of Tennessee's A Streetcar Named Desire. Gore Vidal's friendship with Tennessee Williams, while rife with jealousy and friendly competition, was a special one. He truly enjoyed the time he spent with Tennessee, traveling through Italy, talking about their work, and looking for sex. But there was another famous Southern author who Gore would go to great lengths to avoid. An author that, try as he might, always seemed to pop up when Gore least expected it, as he humorously relayed in an interview with his biographer, Jay Perini, in 2006. The last time I sat on this stage, I was afflicted by, I felt like the pharaoh of Egypt, uh, by a fly. It was an awful fly. Every time I started to talk, it was and I would, and I kept missing it and missing it. And then you remember that movie, The Fly, and which there's a little voice comes out and says, help, help. I realized it was the late Truman Capote had come back. <laughs> Gore was introduced to Truman Capote in 1946 through their mutual friend, the writer, Anais Neen. At this point, Gore had published just one novel, Williwa, and Capote had only published short stories while working on his debut novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. They were nearly the same age, Capote, 21, Gore, 20, although at the time, Capote told everyone, Gore is 25 if he's a day. One of the most famous Gore Vidal quotes is about Capote, one he repeated again and again, as he does here, in a 1975 60 Minutes profile. I said, Truman Capote has spent most of his life trying to get into a world with some success that I have spent most of my life trying with some success to get out of. <laughs> this statement suggests that Gore saw himself as one who had been thrust into a world of celebrity, which didn't especially interest him, and he saw Capote as a social climber, someone trying to live in that world when he really didn't belong. Gore felt Capote was an opportunist, and most importantly, a fake. And this perhaps went hand in hand with Gore's main issue with the author, which was Capote's supposed incessant lying, as he complained on the Tim High radio show in 1995. One of the themes of the book is, is lies and liars. And you present us with a gallery of, of, of world-class liars. The contingency of, uh, of memory is on your mind. When Jimmy Carter said to the American people, I will never lie to you, Senator Frank Church turned to me and said he would deny the very nature of politics. <laughs> <laughs> the pure indignation. I mean, that's what that game's about. I accept that as part of a game. The, the lies of the self-invented drive me crazy, and Capote was the most notorious. And everybody knew he was lying about everything. I mean, he'd just invent stuff on the spot. You would, you'd watch him. So watching the creative process of work was to watch that face start to twitch. As he would invent something on the spot about somebody he'd probably never met or knew about. Uh, you say in the book that that was his true metier, that maybe he should have spent his time lying rather than writing... Well, books. or tried to put it into his fiction. <laughs> Instead, he put it into his non-fiction. <laughs> so he may really have created a new art form. Gore further detailed his views on what he saw as Capote's falsehoods in the profile of a writer documentary from 1978. 
Of my other con exact contemporaries, there's Truman Capote, whom I am at this very moment. Uh, we do not date anything here, but at this very moment I am suing him for $1 million for libel. And Capote is a, and I think we can say this quite fairly, a pathological liar. He literally, if it's Monday, you say, what day of the week is it? It's Wednesday. He absolutely cannot tell the truth about anything, which would be all right. I mean, you know, I, I am tolerant of other people's, uh, I too have my faults. But Capote, whom I last saw 11 years ago, and before that saw only 10 years before, so in 20 years I've seen this man twice. Every time anybody writes a piece about Gore Vidal, the first person they go to is Truman Capote, because he's supposed to know everyone famous on earth. And you say, El Gobi, yeah, it's such an awful person, you know. And then you get this terrible interview. And I finally got sick of it. So I said, all right, enough is enough. I'm going to sue you for one million dollars, and I'm going to win. And that is where we stand with him. But what is this lawsuit Gore speaks of? What possibly could have happened to bring Gore to sue Capote for one million dollars in 1975? Believe it or not, it stemmed from an event that happened 14 years earlier, at which Truman Capote was not even in attendance. In November 1961, Gore received an invitation to a dinner at the Kennedy White House. The year before, Gore had run for Congress and lost, but his friend Jack Kennedy and somewhat stepsister Jackie Kennedy had been successful in their political attempt and were now living in the White House. As he felt he had helped Kennedy get elected, Gore hoped he would be considered for some position in the current cabinet. Sadly, all that was offered was a place on the Presidential Committee for the Arts, which included occasional dinners at the White House. That evening, after drinking many glasses of champagne, waiting for dinner to begin, Gore wandered through the halls until he saw Jackie sitting with others in the blue room. He approached the group and knelt beside Jackie because there were no available chairs. Dinner was soon announced, and as he got up to leave, Gore placed his hand on Jackie's shoulder to steady himself. He would later say it was that or her knee, which seemed like a truly bad idea. Suddenly behind him was Jack's brother, Bobby Kennedy, already no fan of Gore, forcefully removing Gore's hand from his sister-in-law's shoulder. Jackie and the others moved on to the dining room, so she never knew the conversation that followed between Gore and Bobby. Apparently insults were thrown back and forth, and Gore sat fuming all through dinner. And then, 14 years later, in a 1975 article for Playgirl, Truman Capote, who had not been at the 1961 dinner, for whatever reason decided to tell the story of the time Gore Vidal was thrown out of the White House by Bobby Kennedy for being drunk and insulting Jack and Bobby's mother, none of which had actually happened. Gore assumed Jackie's sister, Lee Radziwill, had told Capote some twisted version of the actual incident since Radziwill was known to be social with Capote, but Radziwill denied the story came from her. Gore was tired of Capote's frivolous lies and decided to sue him for one million dollars. Truman Capote himself spoke of the lawsuit and his relationship with Gore on his 1978 appearance on The Dick Cavett Show. Why can't you fellows remain friends, you writers? It seems to me that people are always publishing memoirs about how we used to be friends or uh, <laughs> uh, Tennessee and Gore know, used to be friends yeah. and Truman and, no. and Norman and so on, but these days they all sort of no, throw Norman darts at each other from friend. a distance. And, are you? Oh, Norman and I are very good friends. It's Norman and Gore that aren't friends, and then Gore's not my friend because Gore sued me, sued me for a million dollars. 
It's already cost me $27,000 in legal fees, so I don't feel oh. too friendly towards Gore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but we always hurt the ones we love, isn't that the thing? <laughs> he may not Gore mean it. and I were great friends at one time. He may not mean it personally. Maybe it's just in a, in yeah, a business yeah, sense. Yeah, well, he sued me just to be uh, tiresome. They used to be great friends at one time. Gore would, of course, say Capote was once again lying. Lee Radziwell, who reportedly detested Gore, calling him, quote, the most sinister man I know, felt Capote's story was so full of falsehoods that she signed a deposition in Gore's favor. In the end, Playgirl printed a retraction of Capote's statement, and Gore decided to drop the case after he felt Capote had suffered enough, sending him a $50,000 bill for his legal fees, which, of course, was never paid. And then in 1984, full of drugs and having contracted liver disease, Truman Capote died. Gore said to his agent about Capote's death, it was a wise career move. And thinking that was such a fitting tribute, his agent made sure to have the quote printed everywhere, which is how we know it today. In looking back at his interactions with Capote, mixed with the drama of Lee Radziwill, added to the tough guy antics of Bobby Kennedy, Gore says in his 1995 memoir, Palimpsest, I should have known better. I stayed among them for too long. He meant among Capote, of course. But it does make you wonder if he also meant among the entire Kennedy clan. In fact, Gore would soon find out what it felt like to be welcomed into the inner circle of that famous family, but only for a moment, before he was suddenly, very harshly, shut out. Vidolatry is brought to you by We Own This Town. This episode was written and produced by me, with additional research by Joshua Rees. You can find more information about this episode at vidolatry.com. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.